Welcome to Pancakes on Sunday. Like pancakes, we have many different flavors that we like to bring to the table every week. Oh, hello, boys. Hello. Uh, we talk sports, mental health, women's awareness, video games, tabletop games, interviews, and a lot more. This week is Through the Looking Glass of a Therapist. Oh, episode three. Yeah. I can't believe episode three already. That's like crazy. That That's a nice intro. That is a nice intro. Yes. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So, before we go around, what's your favorite flavor of a pancake, Joe? What are you... Ooh. Blueberry pancakes. Oh, but, yeah. I don't like the blueberry <laughs> in, like, the sauce on top. The blueberry's got to be in the pancakes. Okay. Like, blueberry in the pancake. Real blueberry, blueberry pancakes. Yeah. yeah. All right. Cool. Get cool, rid cool. of that fucking sauce bullshit. <laughs> I like a regular pancake. But, if you can make that pancake just ever so slightly crusty... Do you like a crispy pancake? You don't like fruit pancakes? Not really, no. Just a regular old pancake with some maple syrup on there, loaded up with some butter, a little bit of a crunch. Ooh, that oh. shit smacks so oh, hard. you're not American. Oh, I don't know about that. You see this mullet? <laughs> <laughs> Pretty fucking American if you ask me, bro. Yeah, dude, so we went to yours truly tonight. Nice. Dinner was okay. All right. A little pricey for dinner being okay. That's okay. Just truly. Whatever. And I saw two people, two grown-ass men, get a fucking, like, large stack of pancakes for dinner. <laughs> nice. Nice. And I'm like, dude, what a solid fucking choice. I wish I would have went with pancakes yeah. for dinner or French toast or something. French toast. I love me some French dude, toast. I don't do it all the time, but yes, I do French love me some French toast. That's why my favorite pancake. That's my favorite pancake is French toast. <laughs> I know, <right? laughs> What's your favorite pancake, baby? Cinnamon pear. Ooh, Ooh, that would be good. Cinnamon pears yeah. baked in the pancake, like Joe said. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You just get, yeah, you take cinnamon and you just mix it in with the pears and then you cook the pears in the pancake. Oh my God. Yeah. What is it that you get at the pancake house? The oh, Reese's. peanut butter chocolate chip. Yeah. Ooh, that would be pancake. good. Really rich. It's right. super rich. It's oh, so right. good, though. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I like the blueberry pancake as well, but I am all about the blueberry syrup. Mm. I like blueberry pancakes, but I prefer pear, cinnamon pear, mm-hmm. by far. Yeah. I get it. Nothing against it. Yeah, I'll eat the blueberry pancakes, but I just love a good old-fashioned pancake. Good old-fashioned flapjack. Good old-fashioned <laughs> flapjack, right? <laughs> All right, boys. So, I got a couple of resources with me here today. Um, I have the Ultimate Serial Killer trivia book by Jack Rosewood. I used this for some of my referencing I have the Diagnostic Statistics Manual 5. This is a desk reference, though. It's not the full. The other one is, like, that thick. And for listeners, uh, two to three inches thick of a book. That's it. (laughs) (laughs) You're a tool. It was huge. It was huge. Um, Yeah, Ryan said three inches ain't a lot. Huge. And so this is the book that I use to provide mental health diagnoses to individuals who come to see me for therapy. Okay? That's your handbook. This is the, yes, this is the handbook of it. Okay. So the other one, and this is also used, therapists, it's not uh, just used by therapists. It's used by psychologists, psychiatrists, doctors, MDs. It's got sleep disorders and stuff in here too. So. Wow. Yeah, lots of stuff. I might have to look at those sleep disorders up in Neurocognitive disorders, things that I'm not allowed to diagnose, essentially, um, are also in here. So, right. like communication disorders, stuff like that. 
Um, I also like to reference um, murderpedia.org. That's kind of the my favorite go-to website to read up on different serial killers. Um, and then those are the primary three references I, I, I've used. And I have a couple that I will reference towards the end here um, that I'm going to have to pull up as we kind of get into what we're talking about today. So what are we talking about today? We are talking about uh, psychopathy uh, and sociopathy. Mm -hmm. Right? I know. I'm guessing they're very different. There's got to be a huge difference. There is not. What? It's not very different. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So. That's kind of surprising. It's like little things. Right. Um, and as I, the, the line is gray. The line is pretty gray, actually. So the, as we talk about it, I kind I. We di diagnose, I'm going to use that word so many times tonight, not meaning to. We define certain things, um, certain aspects of each of the psychopathy versus sociopathy. But in this podcast, I reference them in regards to serial killers mostly, and that this will make sense, I think, as we kind of get along throughout this. So while I use this Ultimate Serial Killer book um, for some of my referencing, you know, I appreciate the guy's outlook, uh, but I can't look past some of the definitive talk he uses to describe serial killers. So he uses words like monsters and predators. And so while some of their behaviors can be monstrous and predatory, I, I think that he is using this language to define who they are based on just their one this one aspect of themselves. And... Um, so I think they're more than that. They're more than just predatory and monstrous in nature, okay? So I, I did use this book, but I, I didn't use all the language that he did. Uh, I used it to depict some definitions that I think are useful. Um, and I did also get some of this information from Google. So when something came about, I would um, try to cite that credible, you know, try to cite that source. And... Uh, the sources, of course, I always try to cross-check my references and make sure it's credible. I don't just assume that, you know, Google knows what it's talking about. No? Yeah. Google doesn't know everything? <laughs> so for the For the people that need to hear that out there, Google doesn't know everything, okay? Wow. Wow. All right. And I'm going to be talking a lot tonight, so I'm going to take sips of water as I need to, okay? Yeah. Yeah. I got myself a nice platform, Brisky, over here, mm -hmm. so I mean Stay hydrated out there. Stay hydrated. <coughs> All right, so Special Agent Robert Ressler coined the term serial killer in the late 1970s. Agent Ressler. Yeah. Isn't from that crazy? Hunter. From Blacklist? Yeah. And Mindhunter. Oh, and man, Yeah, so that's just a common name, I guess. Um, <laughs> well, I think it was done on purpose. I think so, too. Yeah. yeah. And probably in Blacklist, too, because they were the feds, right? So he is considered the father of behavioral profiling. Uh, however, earlier than that was Detective Ernst August Ferdinand Gannat in the 1940s. What a name. I know. That's a good name. That's a really good name. It is. August Ferdinand. Ferdinand. Right. Gannat. Gannat. Ferdinand like the cow? <laughs> uh, he coined the term in 1940s. Um, and I don't know, since it's German, I don't know if I'm pronouncing this right, but Syrian mortar. So, and there's probably some accent behind that, right? Probably. Um, translating that into serial murderer. Either way, both of these individuals have similarities in the work they do and should both be recognized for that. So just a little bit of history on where the 
term serial killer came from. Uh, some other definitions I think are important, um, not necessarily for the means of this podcast, but I think some of us go into watching sh- crime shows and stuff like we know what they're talking about, mm-hmm. and we don't always. Yeah, no. And also, crime shows out there aren't totally accurate. So when you see something, you know, I think I've said this before, but when you see, you know, his life was perfect and nobody ever saw this coming, eh, okay, let's, let's, uh, let's reverse that a little bit. Let's mm-hmm. change that dynamic because mm-hmm. it's not, that's not true. Um, it's more complicated than that. But anyway, so modus operandi is motor method of operation. So I've heard, you guys have heard of the MO. There, so one's MO, mm-hmm. right? That's what that is. And this is a particular way or method of doing something, especially one that is characteristic or well-established, the method used to commit the crime, how the offender approached and committed their particular crimes. So that's how Mr. Rose would define that in the book. Then he also went on to say textbook definition of what an MO is refers to the behaviors committed during an offense that serve to ensure its completion while also protecting the perpetrator's identity and facilitating escaping following the offense. MO accounts for how an offender commits the crime. It is what the offender does and has to do to commit the crime. MOs can change and evolve the more people the perpetrators kill. So I gave a lot I gave a lot of examples throughout here so you guys as we continue to talk about we can kind of relate to the people we know as serial killers, right? So Ted Bundy for example started with peeping in windows at women he admired. This evolved into him stalking his victims and attacking them from behind. And later on he it that evolved even further by him engaging in necrophilia with his victims. Um, so for people who don't know what necrophilia is, that is having sex with an unconscious or dead person. Okay. Um, the signature is different from the MO. So a signature address, the the signature addresses the murderer's emotional and psychological needs tied to the offense. This often doesn't change. This is the primary motive for the desire to carry out the offense. So, for example, if the perpetrator mutilated their victims after death, this would be the signature. Because that isn't necessary for the act of killing that person. It's what they wanted to engage in. Their desire to fulfill whatever unhealthy and sadistic fantasy or need that they have. So, robbery can be a signature if one's possessions are stolen after somebody is murdered. And they keep them as trinkets. Yes. Mm. So that is, those are trophies, right? Trophies, yeah. Trophies can be part of one's signature as collecting trophies. So there's an MO and there's a signature. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So there's some, you know, intertwinedness with that, but I wanted to kind of tease those apart for, and like I said, it's not really necessary to have that information for the podcast as we go into this, but it's just a good piece of information. Um, Something that I found pretty cool to know about you know, when I was reading this book myself. Um, so, there are four types of serial killers. Okay, so wow. we're going to break that down first. Oh, so they're just serial killers. I know, right? All right. All yeah. Right. Um, and then we'll, go, we'll talk a little bit more into what sociop- sociopathy and psychopathy are. So, there's a visionary serial killer. That's the first one. And they believe that a separate entity is commanding them to kill. So an example of a visionary serial killer is a guy by the name of Richard Chase. 
also known as the Vampire of Sacramento. He believed that his blood was turning to powder, and to replenish it, had to consume the blood of others. Wow. Yeah. That's, that's intense. Yeah, it for is. sure. Definitely. So, between... Was, oh, okay, sorry, Oh, yeah, sorry. yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah sorry. 19, between 1977 and 1978, he murdered 13 people. So his was a little bit smaller of a killing spree. His method of murder was shooting uh, his victims with a twenty-two handgun. All right. Okay. Then he drink their blood? <sighs> yeah, something like that. So Chase had a history of trauma, right? So I, I went into some history of these guys, too, because I think it's important to recognize, you know, they are people, right? And while I'm in, by no means trying to say that their victims, you know, aren't worth, you know, what they're worth, because they are, too, um, we have to keep it in our back pocket that these individuals are people too, and they weren't they weren't dealt a good hand in life. <laughs> um, so Chase had a significant history of trauma. He was physically abused by his dad. Um, Chase became an alcoholic at a pretty young age. He started killing and mutilating animals and starting fires in places where they shouldn't have been started. Mm-hmm. Kind of mm-hmm. like you know Dahmer when we talked about a couple weeks ago. Uh, he had trouble in relationships with females and supposedly couldn't be aroused unless otherwise stimulated through violent or disturbed acts. So disturbed or violent acts could be killing animals, the process of killing animals. Um, you know, people get he wouldn't get aroused unless that was happening. Necrophilia, you know, having so sex with somebody fun. dead. Yeah. So yeah. Just, just imagine yeah. being somebody who couldn't sexually get aroused unless something disturbing was happening. Yeah, it's so weird. Like, yeah, that's very... How does it get to that point? You just have to be so much disconnection, man. And so trauma. Trauma, yeah. disconnection, environment. Yeah, the disassociation. And I will probably... You know, there's a lot of this... <clears throat> There's a lot of this pattern you see in a lot of serial killers and other ki- killers that you notice. And uh, uh, that is one of those big questions, like, how do they get to this point? Well, you got to think in your mind, if you grew up in this unstable environment 24-7 and that's all you knew, that's all you had. Just chaos. Your body then essentially craves that when you think about it. That's all you mm-hmm. know. Mm-hmm. You wouldn't know what to do in a normal, stable environment. Right. Without that chaos. It's like this... This weird coping mechanism that your brain does. Right. Yeah, it makes sense. So, uh, in 1975, uh, Chase was involuntarily hospitalized. So this was before he actually committed the murders. For trying to inject rabbit blood into his veins. Wow. After undergoing treatment that involved psychotropic medication... Um, along with, you know, this was inpatient, so there was probably some pretty intense therapy, stuff like that. Um, supposedly his mother took him, like, once he was released, his mother supposedly took him off the antipsychotic medication that they had put him on. That probably was working, right? Right. Um. Go bomb. And then his behavior worsened, Hmm. right? Because he's not on antipsychotics anymore. And psychotropic medications usually don't work just by themselves right you got to have therapy pretty intense and if you are as sick as this guy was like yeah you, yeah. Get, you, ha- you gotta go you got you you gotta go you gotta go <laughs> you gotta you gotta do something yeah right um so while i can't speak to his specific diagnosis because it appears it changed a few times which can happen in mental health and it's not necessarily a bad thing because there's misdiagnoses that happen all the time and that's not because 
the clinician is wrong. It's because they perceived the person to be that certain way based on the information the client gave them. You got to okay? think, these are really hard acts to do for therapists, psychiatrists, everything else. One, the way the system is designed. And then I would say on top of it, each clinician, each psychiatrist naturally has a bias to mm -hmm. things they see, things they deal with, what their specialty is. This is why I see you see this happen kind of across the board. Well, even like like but like even it could be the person too. Who yes. knows what they're who knows what the hell bullshit exactly. they're feeding them too. Yeah, right. So well, I mean, this person could think they were depressed. This person thinks they're de bipolar. Correct. Well, that's going to take some time to correct. figure out yeah. and dissect. Mm -hmm. And and part of why it's important as a therapist, kind of going off of your people having natural biases, we all have natural biases. But that's the one thing as a therapist that you're not really supposed to have. You're you not supposed are supposed to. to walk into, and I feel I do a really good job at this. And I'm not saying, you know, I'm perfect. I'm by far, I'm human, right? And so um, I think that with any clinician providing any sort of mental health diagnosis, you have to walk into any scenario and spend a lot of time with that patient before you can say, like, hey, they're diagnosed with this. Because, you know, right now I'm exploring with a couple of different clients actually some potential misdiagnoses mm. or diagnoses that they weren't aware that they had or, you know, whatever the case may be. Um, Cross analysis. And and it's not about being right or wrong. Um, it's just getting the client the help that they actually need. And you don't sometimes know that unless there is a specific diagnosis assigned. And a lot of these cats have, like you said, several different things. Mm -hmm. Yes. It's not just one yeah. diagnosis. Right, mm -hmm. right. Mm -hmm. I go into comorbid comorbidity here in a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, but, yeah. So, I'm uh, Mr. Chase had, you know, schizophrenia with somatic delusions. So, I think that was his most recent diagnosis. So, I am going to read you uh, some pieces parts of schizophrenia in the DSM, right? So you have an understanding of how I can diagnose somebody with a disorder such as schizophrenia. So two or more of the following, each present for a significant portion of time during a one month period or less if successfully treated. So at least one of these must be. So, and then they list, they list some things. So the, the person has to have two or more of the following. Delusions, which is um, a uh, unrealistic way of sort of viewing yourself in, in the world. Like you're delusional. You don't see things correctly. Hallucinations. So that's visual or auditory, right? You see things that aren't there or you hear things that aren't there. Disorganized speech. So frequent derailment or incoherence. Uh, what? <laughs> Grossly disorganized or catatonic behavior. Um, catatonic. I want to make sure I get that right. I think that's just like really... So cat dreams <clears throat> and tonic. Delayed. Catatonic. Relating to... Oh. Immobile or unresponsive. Yeah. So delayed. Right. Um, negative symptoms. So negative symptoms are things that are, sh are not there that should be. So diminished emotional expression. So... Affect. So let's say you're talking to somebody and you crack a joke and they do not respond whatsoever. That doesn't mean they have schizophrenia, right? That just means that their ability to appropriately 
um, express themselves, but their facial, exp but their affect, right? Their emotional affect is off. Or maybe you need a better joke. I mean, you're <laughs> <laughs> <Get> real. <laughs> um, or, you know, uh, seeing a situation in which somebody should have affect. So it's not necessarily speaking with somebody, but them, you watching somebody watch something else, like a television show or something. And they're just sitting there with a very plain face the ex whole time, no matter like what is Jeffrey happening. Like the Jeffrey Dahmer face. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's like, why does everybody want to leave? Okay. So I'm going to just leave it at that because it goes into a lot more... Um, I'll read B. For a significant portion of the time since the onset of the disturbance, level of functioning is one or more major areas such as work, interpersonal relations, or self-care is markedly below the level achieved prior to the onset. So ultimately, if this, if these criteria up here, client has to meet two or three, two or more of those criteria, and it has to impact their ability to function in day-to-day -day life. Okay? Yeah. With, if someone is diagnosed with this, with you know, medication and therapy and everything else is, can you get cured from it or are you, is that something that you'll always have? That's a good question. So mental illness, um, and I go into a little bit of this later, but no, you cannot be cured. Something like this is treatable. So once you've been diagnosed with a severe mental illness, schizophrenia. So if we look at mental illness on a spectrum, um, schizophrenia can be pretty severe where one does have to be on psychotropic medication and get, you know, uh, essentially, uh, therapy for the rest of their lives. There's also. Yeah, I haven't even till recently actually saw anything, um, like Chelsea says, a word I feel I hear a lot is treatable. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Most things are treatable and manageable, but it, you're yeah. never going to be cured Cure from this. Right, I would take that. That's yeah. something that's with yeah, you forever. Yeah, it's, it's going to stick with you. And it wasn't until recently I followed this one guy, and it was very interesting listening to him, but he was a um, sociopath mm. living a very functionable life. Mm -hmm. And so many people had questions for him, like how he functions, what he does, stuff like this. and. It was so cool because he was so divulging of the information and you could see this dude was clearly a sociopath, mm -hmm. but is managing right. mm -hmm. as a sociopath. And there's different, so there's first episodes and then there's multiple episodes and continuous episodes. So it really depends on the level of severity too. Sometimes people can have like a drug induced episode where which is would not fall under schizophrenia that would then fall under drug induced schizophrenia so there's different ones in mm. here right mm. and so the episode is that they weren't full-blown schizophrenic right mm. or full-blown had schizophrenia but they had a substance induced um episode and mm. i also get into people who are functioning right now too so yeah because it's a rarity like you don't see much of that well the the stories and we actually probably see it more than you know. Right. And, I, and yeah, so we'll right, talk about I that. because I feel there's probably a lot, like, closet-wise, I would say. Well, and also, again, back to the spectrum of things. People function with psychopathy or sociopathy not because they meet full criteria for it, 
but because they are on the like this the cusp the, the like the other side of the spectrum that barely makes them that right so <laughs> while i can't speak to oh um and then a somatic delusion so remember the guy uh mr chase here that i'm talking about he you know thought his blood was uh turning to powder mm. um so that's a somatic delusion Right, that his for whatever reason, I'll and I don't know if this is why Chase thought his blood was turning to powder, but you know something was telling him that he had to blood, drink the blood of other things so that he could continue to live or whatnot. So his blood could have been so important for X Y Z, you know. So that's a delusion, right? That's a somatic delusion. So Chase overdosed on antidepressants while he was incarcerated in 1980 was how that guy went out. So, um, I think he was bullied pretty severely in prison, too, um, if I'm not mistaken. And he pretty much just was told to kill himself, and he did. He was successful in that. So, another type of serial killer, um, a a mission-oriented serial killer, murders as a way to rid society of a particular group of people. Like Dexter. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Bing, 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 bing. Nice. <laughs> Got yeah, it. so for you Dexter fans out there, Dexter. So he's out there getting rid of other bad sociopaths, right. other bad people. So yeah. do you see a lot of cult-based serial killings in that category? Mission. Um, so cults don't necessarily exist to rid people, though. Some cults. Right. So it could be. Um, I guess it depends. So, so is that more visionary or missionary? Well, I, I, it probably depends. Mm. And it doesn't have to be one or the other. They can over they can overlap too. You can be mm-hmm. two kinds of serial killers. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's true. So, yeah. uh, an example of a mission-oriented killer would be Peter Sutcliffe, the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, he murdered 13 sex workers and attempted to murder seven more between 1975 and 1980. He targeted young white females, and his method of killing was hitting with them with a hammer and or stabbing them with a knife. A little bit about him. He was a loner at school and dropped out at 15 years old. He had a number of different menial jobs, and he became a driver of some sorts, I don't think it was a truck driver. It was a driver for some company uh, where he often used prostitutes. And there's a speculation that he had a bad experience in which one conned him out of money. And that sort of began or manifested his hatred of women. Um, He heard voices from God telling him to commit these offenses according to him. And he was, so he was just cleaning up the streets. Like Batman, but not good. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so this is, he is also partially visionary, right? Because he, God is telling him to Right, he's hearing thing, voices. Right? Yeah. See, that's, that was my question, because mm-hmm. I was going to bring up, you know, like Charles Manson. Well, usually a like, cult, like when you're going back to their cult killings, usually that, that's one person telling a bunch of other people to do, and I mean... Mm-hmm. To do something, so it's it's almost like they got this god complex, and yeah, like Waco, so they're, Charles, they're, Charles Manson. You got the dude from Waco, Texas. Yeah, you got, Waco never killed anybody. 
Right. He never killed anybody, so he was not. He does not fall under any True, of this. True, he never this. did kill anybody. He yeah. never yeah. killed Tactic, anybody. No. no, I think that that's a whole other. He didn't. Yeah. No. Yeah. No. That was a whole. Other that shit was show. that was a fuck story. Yeah. And but Charles I, Manson didn't either, technically. Correct, but right. he never also ordered the hits on anybody. Waco did not. Waco was actually a decent guy, as far as I'm concerned. I watched that documentary on Netflix. Mm-hmm. It wasn't a documentary; it was a the show. Series, TV yeah, show. The series. Yeah, it was really fucking sad. Yeah, and how they handled that was asinine. Hunt, so many women and children, oh, people yeah. died of, and and they just handled that so not yeah not appropriately. Um, but anyways, so back to Mr. Sutcliffe. Uh, no, we're actually on to our next type of serial killer. So, a hedonistic serial killer kills for their own personal satisfaction, often sexually motivated. Uh, this can be broken down into three subcategories. Okay. Right? So, we have lust, hedonistic, which kills for their own sexual satisfaction. Thrill, which, thrill, hedonistic, kills for the adrenaline rush. And comfort, hedonistic, kills for financial or other material gains. And uh, so Ed Kemper, Edmund Kemper is an example of a lust killer. Uh, he's a little bit more of a well, more, a more well-known name. There's a couple of people that I wanted to... He was the bigger guy with the mustache and he the was. glasses. Yeah, yeah, he was in Mindhunters, right? Yeah, he was. Yes. Yep. Yep. He was, I think he was the first guy they talked to. Yeah, yeah, that was the guy. So he, he was the one incarcerated that dude went into prison to, and he ended up having a panic attack. I think so, yeah. Do you remember that? And I think so. Ed Kemper actually kind of felt for him. Yeah. And, which is so strange to me. Um, yeah, that is interesting. Because of where, you know, him being the person that he was. But, um, you know, he has, he also targeted a specific population, mm-hmm. too. So, um, so he had a total of 10 victims between 1964 and 1973. He would attack, strangle, and dismember his victims and would get sexual gratification from both killing and mutilating them. Uh, he also engaged in necrophilia and sometimes rape. So uh, rape is before the person is dead, right? Necrophilia is after the person is dead. Hmm. Ed Kemper had an IQ of 145. He was fucking genius. Fucking genius. Which wow. blows my mind even more. Right. Oh, yeah, that is... That. <laughs> um... You know, for somebody to be so smart, but, and, and having a mental illness doesn't make you dumb, right? No. Uh, I just, for, I, brain development, right? Like, where does their, where does this change things for people's development as far as their brain smarts and, like, their emotional intelligence? Yeah. Just very strange to me. That is interesting. Uh, Kemper was born in Burbank, California to Clarnell Stage at Edmond Emil Kemper Jr. Um, again, he was very intelligent. However, he displayed sociopathic behavior from a young age. He also tortured and killed young animals, young animals, just animals in general. Um, acted out bizarre sexual rituals with his sister's dolls, and once said that in order to kiss a teacher he had a crush on, he would have to kill her. Worsening the situation was Kemper's mother, who constantly berated and humiliated her son and often made him sleep in a locked basement due to a fear that he would molest his sisters. Not not how she should handle that at all. No, not even a little bit. Um, Maybe have a sit down, talk with him, be like, hey. 
uh, maybe therapy. Cool. Right. I, I don't know how you, know you think that, you know, locking your son in the back, uh, in the basement is going to do anything different. Uh, or what, what year was this, though? So he, this, in 1964 to 1973 is a total of 10 victims. But, See, but when he was up. growing up, though, in that period of time, if his mother would have taken him in to tell him what he was doing, mm -hmm. they would have just locked him up right there. They really wouldn't have done anything in the 60s. Well, what's the difference? Well, I mean, I mean, he was a kid probably in the 50s or 40s. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, it, it's even worse then. To be... In, in, I mean, the stuff that they were doing to people back in the 40s and 50s in those, in, in mental institutions. Yeah, I guess you pick your poison at that point. Right. Yeah. That's fair. Um, so, but I guess she also had some significant mental health issues, too. So, in my opinion, you know, therapists have been around for a while. I don't know if we can go as far back as this. I, I feel like we can, as far as the work I do. I mean, I know that psychology has been a thing for a long time so um but Kemper's mom had borderline personality disorder which resulted in her rages and abuse against her son so borderline personality disorder is really severe um and so I pulled up a couple of different personality disorders that we're going to talk about today too borderline personality disorder uh, pervasive pattern of instability of interpersonal relationships, self-image and affects, and marked impulsivity, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts, is indicated by five or more of the following. So frantic efforts to avoid real or imagined abandonment. Uh, a pattern of unstable and intense interpersonal relationships characterized by alternating between extremes of idealization and devaluation. Identity disturbance, markedly and persistently unstable self-image or sense of self, impulsivity in at least two areas that are potentially self-damaging, so spending money, substance abuse, reckless driving, binge eating, promiscuity, stuff like that. Mm. Um, recurrent... <laughs> oh my god, Ryan. <laughs> recurrent <laughs> suicidal behavior, gestures or threats, or self-mutilating behavior, active, affective instability due to a marked reactivity of mood. So intense episodic dysphoria, irritability or anxiety, usually lasting a few hours. Um, chronic feelings of emptiness, inappropriate intense anger or difficulty controlling their anger, and transient stress-related paranoid ideation or severe diso disassociative symptoms. So, borderline personality disorder is pretty intense shit. Sounds like it. And um, personality disorders, and I, I'm going to get into this in a little bit too, not too much because it can be a podcast in itself, but personality disorders are another kind of mental illness. Okay, so just kind of keep that thought in your back pocket as we talk about this. Episode four. Episode five. four. Personality disorder. Yeah, I actually think I had put on here that we we're going to talk about personality disorders versus mental illnesses oh. as one of the podcasts. Toy. Fantastic. Tight. Toy. So, on August 27, 1964, Kemper shot his grandmother while she sat at the kitchen table putting the finishing touches on her latest children's book. When his grandfather came home from grocery shopping, Kemper shot him as well. He called his mother, who urged him to call the police. And when questioned, he said that he just wanted to see what it felt like to kill Grandma. 
and he killed his grandfather because he knew he would be angry at him for what he had done to his grandmother. Kemper was only 15 years old at the time that that happened. Wow. So he was committed to a state hospital where he befriended his psychologist and even became his assistant. So there were some... Th Back then, this is why we have an ethics board now. <laughs> As therapists, <laughs> yeah. right? You, you can't, you don't do that. Um, he was intelligent enough, right, based on his IQ, to, um, in probably some of his manipulative behavior, to gain the trust of the doctor to the extent of being allowed to um, access prisoners' tests and stuff. Oh, shut up, bitch. Nice. <laughs> um... With the knowledge he gained from his apprenticeship there, uh, he eventually was able to impress his doctor at the hospital enough to let him go. Wow. So, not impress, manipulate. Pretty much. That's what he I was knew. Saying. He knew what to say and he knew what to do mm -hmm. yeah. to yeah. manipulate his mm -hmm. way out. And he probably knew very well what he, you know, knew oh, very yeah. well. He was incredibly oh, intelligent. Yeah. And he was a mentally ill person himself. So, like, he was able to really navigate that. Um, he was released into his mother's care in Santa Cruz, California, against the wishes of several doctors at the hospital. So even though there was some people saying, okay, we can let him go, other doctors were like, I don't think that's a good idea, they ended up doing that on it anyways. Hmm. Um, and he also was able to get his juvenile record sealed, um, you know, where he killed his grandparents. Um... And that's really it on Kemper. Uh, and so later on, you know, then he became a serial killer and, and killed all those women. Uh, so the Zodiac Killer is an example of a thrill killer. He murdered couples and would taunt the press about police with letters. Um, so, uh, and then the, the next one is women tend to be comfort killers um, more so than males. Dorothea Puenta is an example of a comfort killer. She would drug and kill her elderly tenants and take their social security checks. Wow. And wasn't it you who told me women serial killers are one, rare. Yes, and two, more rare. Mm -hmm. Definitely more rare. And two, they tend to use poison a lot. Yes, I did tell you that. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Huh. Poison ivy. So check what you eat, boys. All right. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Jesus. How about you eat first? <laughs> yeah. Right. Right. Uh, one killer who fits all three criteria, and supposedly has an estimated 250 victims, received both sexual and thrilling sensations from his murders, and in one instance, he put his name in the will of one of his victims. Who is that, though? I didn't write that down. Hold on, I'm hanging on the edge of my seat now. You said, you said that's a lot of people. That is a lot of people. That's why I brought this book, because I figured that I would have some... Harold Shipman, hmm. a British GP, is considered to be one of... Yep. So that, that who, that's who that is. Um... He was then a um, the kind of serial killer I'm looking for. Oh, they were all three. Less thrill and comfort. All right, sorry, boys. Mm -hmm. Trying to get my my bearings back. 
Doing great. All right, thanks. Mm. All right, so last type of serial killer, a power control serial killer, craves domination over their victims, so their kills are in order to own them. Right? Okay, so this is the domination, this is the power thing. Whoa. Ted Bundy is one of the most prolific. He wanted to dominate his victims by manipulating, attacking them brutally, sexually victimizing them, and discarding their bodies in places that they might not have been found. Between 1973 to 1978, he had 14 plus victims. His victims were girls and young women, and he often would beat them with a metal bar or use strangulation. So a little bit about Ted Bundy. There was speculation about who his father was, and because his mother had Ted out of wedlock, her parents claimed him as their son, and he believed his mother to be his older sister for a long time. Ooh, that's fucked. It was also mentioned that his grandfather, his mother's dad, was abusive. Since this remains speculation, and it's sort of unclear about his early life, I'm really just going to say that he had some really fucked up family dynamics. That Sounds like it, yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah, and that normally also tells me there's a bigger story to be told there when it's like all this speculation and a weird family dynamic. That means that that screams trauma when you think about it. It's like how much in this family was covered up. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So usually complicated family dynamics, um, based on what I read, uh, it can also it often result in significant mental health related issues. Um, you know when that stuff goes unresolved. So, uh, he seemed to struggle with social interactions with others, and they described him as introverted. And so, being introverted isn't a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And and so, I'd like to point that out. I was an introvert for a little um, bit. I didn't, yeah. I didn't socialize with people. Yeah, and that's okay. Mm-hmm. Being an introvert isn't. So that's a little bit different than you During know COVID, they were all isolation. Okay. <laughs> yeah, whatever. Everybody's doing it, man. Who cares? Well, that, that's that's quarantine. That's isolation to ah. some degree for some of us. I think, it, so it's deeper than that. You know, he socially isolated <coughs> isolated himself, therefore stunting his social development. He spent lots of time engulfed in crime books and magazines that reflected on violence and sexuality, probably contributing to it, contributing to a significant and severely unhealthy arousal template. So when you find, you know, something that you're really interested in, and it's okay that you have interests, but you almost become obsessed with it in a way. Yeah. Um, and, and that's all you do all the time. It's, it's going to contribute to some unhealthy thinking patterns and processes that, uh, take a while to undo, especially in a young developing brain. So did Ted Bundy have a lot of dribbles? What? (laughs) You're fucked up. (laughs) He's Um, a one dribble, two dribbles, three dribbles, more. (laughs) Oh my God, you guys. John Wayne Gacy is another one of this type of serial killer. He killed between 1972 and 1978 a total of 33 victims. His MO was strangulation, and his victims were boys and young men. He had an alcoholic father who was both physically and verbally abusive. He was actually charged with sodomy and sentenced to 10 years in prison for trying to coerce a male colleague into sexual acts. He spent 18 months in prison and was paroled. Casey? Yeah. Wow. 18 months out of 10 years. Right. What the fuck? Okay. But 
I watched that actual documentary. That was an actual documentary on Netflix. And that that was one actually was freaky. Really, yeah, no, you got you had nightmares. Yo, I yeah, kind of I, I, I yeah. keep watching that one. I was <laughs> um, like, this dude's sick. Is it the one with the tapes? Yeah, yeah, John Wayne Gacy tapes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I Yeah, that was hard to watch. Yeah. Um, harder than harder than the Dahmer series. Yeah, I would say so. Really. Well, different. So the Dahmer series was like a show, and then this was like a documentary. Right, right. So, so yeah. So when you hear the real person, sometimes it's it's just cringy. It's, yeah. It's, yeah. And it's it's terrifying. Yeah. It really is. Okay. You know. So he was also charged with attempting to rape another man in 1971, but the victim didn't show up to court, so the charges were dropped. Mm. Nice. <laughs> yeah. Nice. Um, so, he ended up opening a construction business that appeared to open the door for him to hire, guess what? Men. Young boys. boys. Yep. Young boys and men. Um, he also dressed up as a clown, which is super interesting to me, and I didn't really get into the dynamics of that. I think that's also what made it super creepy for me, because I hate clowns. Right. Yeah. Oh, yeah, that probably made it super that creepy. That would definitely he had weird paintings and stuff on the wall, too. I don't know too much about him. I just know that he killed um, a lot of people dressed yeah. up as a clown as a construction guy. Yeah. Yeah. He yeah. buried his victims underneath the foundation of his house, too. So. Yeah. 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 I listened to a podcast about that. That was interesting. I yeah. think they're still four or five bodies that they haven't identified still. Correct. Yeah. yeah. He has some victims that have yet to be identified. It's um, terrible. Yeah. So, the weird thing about both of these guys, right, we talked about Ted Bundy and John Wayne Gacy. They're both likable people. They're charismatic. Um, and, and so, I think this goes into some, to show some of their narcissistic characteristics regarding their desire for power and control. So I wanted to um, read the DSM for Narcissistic Personality Disorder. Narcissistic. So a pervasive pattern of grandiosity in fantasy or behavior, need for admiration and lack of empathy, beginning by early adulthood and present in a variety of contexts is indicated by five or more of the following. Has a grandiose sense of self-importance. So, for example, they exaggerate their achievements and talents. Expects to be recognized as superior without commensurate achievement. Is preoccupied with fantasies of unlimited success, power, brilliance, beauty, or ideal love. Believes that he or she is, quote, special and unique and can only be understood by or should associate with other special or high-status people or institutions requires excessive admiration, has a sense of entitlement. So, for example, unreasonable expectations of especially favorable treatment or automatic compliance with his or her expectations is interpersonally exploitative. So they might take advantage of others to achieve his or her own ends. Lacks empathy, is unwilling to recognize or identify with the feelings and needs of others is often envious of others or believes that others are envious of him or her and shows arrogant, haughty behaviors or attitudes. Mm. Yeah. Narcissism. Both of uh, these men were sentenced to death and executed in prison. Okay. So, without going into too much detail, types of serial killers can overlap as well. Um... 
and there are serial killers who don't necessarily have a motive either. So um, that can be rare. So just kind of keep that in your back pocket too. Before I move on to sociopaths and psychopathy, do you boys have any questions so far? I don't think so. I'm following. Okay. <laughs> it's, it's a lot. I can appreciate that. All right. The difference between psychopaths and sociopaths. So people often use these terms interchangeably, and while that isn't the end of the world, they're not the same. Um, we have brushed briefly in a previous podcast that these all exist to some degree on a spectrum. So the general population can exhibit uh, maybe one to a few of these traits. That doesn't necessarily make one uh, a psychopath, right, or a sociopath. One would have to exhibit X of these traits to be diagnosed a psychopath. So in addition, there is a difference between a psychopath and a psychopathic serial killer, or a sociopath and a sociopathic serial killer. And hopefully as we talk about this information, that gray line will become a little bit more clear. So, psychopath is actually in the DSM as antisocial personality disorder. Antisocial does not mean you are afraid to go outside and be around people. Hmm. Antisocial behavior is a very specific kind of behavior. So, Antisocial personality disorder from the DSM. A pervasive pattern of disregard for and violation of the rights of others occurring usually since age 15, as indicated by three or more of the following. So really, antisocial behavior is just not normal behavior. Yeah. Right? You're just not going with the normal things. So failure to conform to social norms with respect to lawful behaviors, as indicated by repeatedly performing acts that are grounds for arrest... Deceitfulness is indicated by repeated lying, use of aliases, or conning others for personal profit or pleasure, impulsivity or failure to plan ahead, irritability and aggressiveness as indicated by repeated physical fights or assaults, reckless disregard for safety of self or others, consistent irresponsibility as indicated by repeated failure to sustain, sustain consistent work, behavior, or honor financial obligations, Lack of remorse is indicated by being indifferent to or rationalizing having hurt, mistreated, or stolen from another person. Uh, the individual is at least 18 years of age. A lot of personality disorders, too, you should not be diagnosing anybody unless they're an adult. Okay. Really? That's, yes. Why is that? Because of brain development. So, with mental illness, though. So... Great question. Right, because, I mean, it's with you your entire life, basically. Yes. I'm not sure I can answer that question full, at full force right now, but if we end up doing a podcast about it, mm. keep that question, and we'll come back to it at some okay. point in the future. Um, there's evidence of conduct disorder with onset before age 15. So conduct disorder is another disorder in this little purple book, and that's usually present precursor for antisocial disorder. Conduct disorder is usually in kids, and it is kind of antisocial disorder in kids. Okay. Okay? And then the occurrence of antisocial behavior is not exclusively during the course of schizophrenia or bipolar disorder. So just a little anarchist. Whatever. No big deal. <laughs> a little anarchy never hurt nobody. All right. So. And I was psychopath. Right? Yes. Okay. So a psycho 
So if psychopathy is um, antisocial personality disorder. Okay. Okay. But psychopath, psychopathic serial killer is different. Okay, so psychopath, just because you have antisocial personality disorder doesn't, mean, doesn't you're mean you're a psychopath. Okay? It means that you can, so... Man, we're getting fucking deep. On I know. It's, and it's hard to explain. <laughs> and and I, the best way to describe it is on a spectrum. You can fully function with antisocial personality disorder... And, and so you technically can still be a psychopath, but you're using it in a way that helps you, that is the best version of yourself that you're going to be, mm. and you just try to work with it. Yeah. And I'll talk about that. So is it fair to say all these things are just precursors? What do you mean? Like, th- this could possibly happen, but because it's a spectrum, like... You know, this is what it is, but you can still live with this and not be a serial killer. Mm-hmm. You cannot be mm-hmm. a psychopath and still yeah. have anti-person. It's all just precursors. It's just this person may have more red flags than others, so they have things they got to right. watch. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So. DSM related, um, a psychopath is uh, a psychopathic serial killer, or I'm sorry, a antisocial behavior, superficial charm, lack of emotion, lack of guilt, narcissism, impulsivity, lack of empathy, parasitic lifestyle, and poor behavioral controls. So that's how Mr. Rosewood kind of defines psychopathy in his um, book here. And I wanted to just, I guess, tease apart that how we view it and how somebody who was reading the DSM, you know, or, or how somebody reading the DSM and diagnosing might look a little different than how it's viewed in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? So you guys kind of know, you know, what a parasitic lifestyle looks like too, right? So that means that they don't really go anywhere. They're kind of just chilling. Poor behavioral controls, impulsivity. Um, a psychopathic serial killer might be a little more organized, and a sociopathic serial killer might be a little more, a little disorganized. So those are two, those are things that, um, like the diff- some of the differences that should be considered here. So, ser- so socio or psychopathic serial killers. So they're usually emotionally controlled and methodical, um, of average or above average intelligence, socially competent, persuasive, and manipulative. Often a skilled worker or self-employed, sexually adequate, subject to minimal discipline as a child, <coughs> moderate use of alcohol before or after a crime, takes an interest in the media reports about their crimes, they're often married or divorced or have children, likely to return to the scene of the crime, carries out their crimes in a familiar area, purposely personalizes and terrorizes the victims to experience a higher la- layer of power, takes additional effort to remove all forensic evidence from the crime scene, and takes trophies from their victims. So that's organized, right? You see how all of those things kind of scream organization. Mm. And that's in a psychopath. Yeah, psychopathic serial killer. Right. Right. A typical psychopathic serial killer would be Dennis Rader or BTK. Going to the book? Yeah, BTK. Going to the book, bro. 
We need like some music playing in the background when we're going to the book. I know, right? <laughs> All right. We're, we do love this book, though. It's it's a really, um, I don't know. It's really it's a really cool book. All right, and of course I didn't mark where this fucking BGK killer was. Right here. Um, he was a he was a respected family man and member of his community in Wichita, Kansas. However, he lived a double life as a homicidal serial killer, claiming ten lives between 1974 and 1991. He would stalk his victims for a considerable time before striking, so he would learn their schedules. He would he would, a lot of patience there, right? Yeah. So, um, when the time came, he would then bring along certain tools to break into the house. And he would sometimes cut, um, bring everything that he needed, right? So duct tape, screwdriver, whatever it was that he, he needed. And sometimes he would cut the phone lines to his victims' houses so they couldn't call the police. Mm. He would also That's some planning. Huh? That's some planning. That is some planning, yes. Um, he would take trophies from his victims, often women's underwear. Uh, he would then taunt the press with vile letters asking, quote, how, do, how many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national recognition, unquote. As well as driving sexual dissatisfaction from his crimes, he was obsessed with celebrity status. Hmm. Okay. Uh, so sociopathic serial killers might possess the following or exhibit the following. Um, impulsive, impulsiveness prone to violent outbursts, below average intelligence, unskilled worker, often sexually inadequate, harsh and often have endured abusive upbringing, which I think can be put under both categories, but neither mm -hmm. here nor there. Totally. Uses alcohol before committing murders, lives alone. They depersonalize their victims to see them as objects to reduce surges of conscious. They kill during windows of opportunity often doesn't conceal the victim's body post-murder and does not fully realize the severity of their actions. An example of this would be Eileen Warnos. She's a woman. Mm. Uh, she exhibited classic sociopathic behavior. Uh, she was a sex worker who trawled Florida highways and between 1989 and 1990, she shot and killed six men. Um, the men that she killed uh, had all enlisted her services and as an escort at the time of their deaths. She claimed that the men turned aggressive once they were in her private company. And she simply acted out against them in rage. Once she'd kill her victims, she would steal and pawn their possessions. She discarded their bodies in wooded areas around Florida, but made little effort to conceal them. Uh, she had a... Uh, an IQ test in prison that indicated she had an IQ of an 81, mm. which is almost developmentally, mentally retarded. I'm pretty sure it's like 78. Really? Yeah, something like that. I could be wrong. I don't administer those tests, so don't quote me on that. Okay. Um, any questions about psychopathy, sociopathy, the serial killing of that? I feel a lot of, like you said, I can see how they can intermingle, right? Oh, easily. And that's why you can have very interesting serial killers, yeah. right? Like, personally, I would say then Jeffrey Dahmer is a little bit of both, right? 
you know, because the way he would dispose a body and conceal it and hide it. But just like the show betrayed, a lot of what he did was also very impulsive. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, like, that could get confusing real quick. He's right. a little bit of both, right? Yeah. He's a little bit of a psycho. Wasn't really a lot of planning. He just kind of did what he did when right. it happened. But then yeah. he planned. Yes. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like, yeah. he did essentially I just, yeah, have I a plan. Yeah. And, and I think, to me, that's what stands out the most. The biggest difference between the two, I would say, is impulsiveness. Mm-hmm. Are you acting purely off emotion and how you feel at the times and have this tendencies, even though you are kind of putting yourself into these scenarios mm-hmm. to possibly make those actions, it's still pretty impulsive ah. mm-hmm. compared to someone, you know, like Ted Bundy or BTK and stuff like that who are, like, simply literally tracking, planning, organizing. Like, right. that's a true psychopath. For sure. So yeah. I think that's how you distinguish. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, profiling-wise, the reason why this is this stuff, this information exists, kind of going back to the historical aspect of it, is profiling. To be able to understand a killer's next move, mm-hmm. you have to understand... The, the way they p- think. The, yeah, exactly. And so we try, I think that's part, and, and also, like, to catch killers now, right, that might think similarly to the people. And one of the things that I wanted to maybe touch on, but I was already kind of, I knew we were kind of cramming here with, um, what I already had. I definitely want to talk about at some point why these serial killers are mostly in the 70s and 80s. Right? Theory. Technology. I mean, yeah. if you think about it now, we have all the technology. Obviously, they didn't. We yeah. have DNA technology. Mm-hmm. We can ping your phone location mm-hmm. to the exact second where you're at, wherever. So, I mean... Mm-hmm. And I think that... Um, you know, uh, people started to experiment with drugs a little bit Okay. around that time. Yep. I think that has something to do with it. I think a lot of it was substance-induced. Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Personally. And I also... Um, I don't know, I feel like drugs have been around for a while. I don't think you can relate it to all the drugs. Well, no, I think not, that's not, not, not all do of it, with it. But it's definitely a big um, part between Vietnam, the heroin spike, the mm-hmm, crack craze. All mm-hmm. that was in that time frame. Right. Mm-hmm. We didn't have that stuff before. Right. Mm-hmm. And acid and stuff. Like, I mean, that should all make yeah. you go Yeah, a lot of that stuff us. came about then. Yeah. Okay, so comorbidity. Wait, so, there. that does oh. raise a question, though. Did it... I think possibly maybe it raised more psychopaths, too, versus sociopaths. Because I feel sociopaths would be something that's probably existed forever, honestly. To where psychopathic tendencies could maybe be come apart from more from substances and other environmental things. and mm. Because it's like, you know, almost like creating your own reality, right? Kind of. I, I kind of see where you're coming from. Yeah. I'm not sure I do. Well, but that's like, okay. The sociopath is more an impulse of like right, he's doing right. now. He's not gonna be. Yeah, it's like he's based not off clean about it. So we're looking at disorganized versus the organized yeah, piece that kinda, I mentioned. Yeah. Okay. But I don't know how that would affect drugs. Or how, if, yeah. If you're. Well, like picture. Let's just use acid as an example. Picture a burnout. Right. He's gonna obviously do things differently in his life now when when he was only functioning off drugs and now is only really. You know what I'm saying? Like he's formed this different reality based off the drugs and the substances he takes because mm-hmm. they're mind altering. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, wouldn't that make him more disorganized? 
It could. I guess it could. So I guess it could go either way. Right. Right. Depending on how the drugs are. Yeah, that's, yeah. Yeah. So maybe we can stew something up, boys, to kind of nail that a little bit more. So comorbidity. So I think it's important to recognize that mental illnesses are often comorbid. They usually don't exist by themselves. So, for example, someone who is diagnosed with, like, a major depressive disorder, for example, could also be diagnosed with a personality disorder or and or a substance use disorder. And they often exacerbate each other. And, you know, for example, borderline personality disorder, somebody could, with borderline, could have a significant alcohol issue, right? And that would provide that they... Um, also have a alcohol use disorder okay so i think with psychopathy and sociopathy you can have some overlapping things so it's not necessarily that they exist by themselves and sometimes the dsm criteria for certain diagnoses overlap each other so that's why like i was saying at the beginning we might misdiagnose every now and again Mm -hmm. because there's a lot of overlap there and we can really only go off our observations as we see the client today. Any collateral information we can get, self-report that the client has, written assessments that they provide. So that's why it's really important that you get to really know a patient. Which one would you say is harder to catch? Sociopath or psychopath? Psychopath. Right, because of the high IQ and the planning, right? Right. I think, yeah. That's what I would think. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah. sociopaths really not going to hide a body. Well, because if you learn someone's MO yes. as a... Yeah. Right. If you learn someone's MO, too, as a sociopath, you can kind of almost anticipate their next move mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. off their impulses and their behaviors. To where as a psychopath, you need to know that plan book, Daniel. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So there's this thing, too, called the McDonald triad. And I just threw this in here. Um, this is something that you assess for when... Um, trying to figure out or assess whether somebody might have some psychopathy or sociopathy, which is wetting the bed, committing acts of arson, or animal cruelty. I actually knew this one. Oh, did you? Yeah. Nice, Joe. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So, um, those three, and I'm going to also throw in there getting into fights. Getting into fights frequently, I think, you know, that kind of goes back to uh, impulsive control, that conduct disorder that I was kind of talking about earlier. Hmm. Um, so this doesn't necessarily mean that these three things are precursors for one becoming a psychopath or a serial killer it's rather that the child might have a history of significant trauma or abuse like their childhood could have been significantly filled with trauma or abuse Um, so these three things don't stand alone for you know, these three things happened, they are a psychopath, there will be a psychopath. Right. Right, we talked about mapping the brain before. These three things don't necessarily indicate that. Um, do psychopaths know they're psychopaths? Often they do. They are aware they sometimes that something might be wrong or different about them but they don't necessarily dwell or ruminate about their thoughts the way a neurotypical brain person might. So their lack of empathy, they may not recognize that other people don't possess the same lack of emotion that they do. Psychopaths do experience a dull emotional awareness. So they might be like, oh, something is different. But that's, the, that's where it ends. Yeah. That's it. 
While in mainstream media, psychopaths are considered emotionless monsters, they aren't that. And so that's why earlier I said, too, I don't want to refer to them as these kinds of people. Um, because I think it just puts them under a definitive umbrella of, ter of bad people, and that's not the case. Um, they, you know, they're, they're humans, and they have an inhibited ability to feel, feel things the way others do. So their internalization of what a psychopath actually is might be skewed, contributing to a more skewed sense of self, which feels lonely in the world that we live in. Mm. And there is no cure for psychopathy. You had asked that earlier. Uh, personality disorders versus mental illnesses, right? We talked about that a little bit. Not this book, this book. Oh, my DSM. The purple book. The purple book. Uh, Got that purple book, bro. So I think we actually... Oh, my God. <laughs> so I think we might actually make that into um, a podcast in the future to kind of look at some of the differences there. I don't know what route that will look like yet, though. That might be a little bit... I don't know yet. I don't know. Too much for my brain to handle right now. Along with this show, I, I, I've been looking up just little tidbits here and there about some crazy things, especially with serial killers. It is said that at any given time, there is an active 25 to 50 serial killers in the U.S. active. Which is interesting. <clears throat> Based off numbers, statistics, obviously. Right. Um, mm -hmm. One of the big reasons, too, they said, I did read before, they said why there were so many serial killers in the 70s and 80s. Hitchhikers. Right. It's a lot easier to kill somebody. That makes sense. Mm -hmm. That's why that's why you don't hitchhike anymore. Right. And they say you find less now also, too, to technology. It's easier to track, find, mm -hmm. forensics, everything else. Mm -hmm. But... It still doesn't stop serial killers, right? But that's what's crazy to know is that they, they estimate there's 25 to between 25 to 50 active serial killers at any given time. In that's the wild. US. Just in the U.S. Mm -hmm. And the two most states that has the most serial killings is California and Texas. Kind of makes sense. Bigger they are pretty big states. Yeah, right. It makes sense. Um, so mental illness and personality disorders, just to kind of comment a little bit on that. While both are part of the DSM, they manifest differently and treatment for them is different too. Um, something that Mr. Rosewood said in this book is pos a positive reinforcement system for psychopaths could be appropriate. Um, so giving something that they want if they maintain good behavior. That's a positive reinforcement system. So let's say dude really likes steak and he wants steak for dinner. As long as he behaves the way that you need him to behave to be a functioning member of society, dude gets steak at the end of the day, mm. right? So it's a positive reinforcement system because it's about him, right? Right? It's not about what you're doing for others. At that rate, it's about what he's doing for himself or herself. Um, and so not all psychopaths or sociopaths become murderers. Um, in fact, psychopathy can be used for good, too. People who are psychopaths can become excellent leaders. Um, for example, due to a lack of emotion, they can thrive in high-stress, high-risk situations. Psychopaths are assertive and don't often waste time. They just tell you how it is, and that's what it is, because they don't actually care what the fuck you think. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> and so they take it into their own hands. Um, medical uh, personnel, law enforcement, militaries, right? 
Um, doctors, for example, they can sit there and cut you open and, you know, mm-hmm. do their deed in there. And um, and for you to be able to, like, look at that is uh, kind of on the spectrum there. Um, so people can absolutely func- function. You know, it's not curable, but it is absolutely treatable. And I wanted to, a uh, while ago, we had all... When I did the one podcast too, I mentioned a se- a little sociopathic girl who had who who tried to kill her family yeah. and, and killed birds and stuff. I wanted to give her some recognition. Her name is Beth Thomas, and I don't know if you guys ever heard of the Child of Rage or a Child of Rage or Child of Rage, but mm-hmm. essentially she was really damaged child, um, and she is now a therapist. Really, mm-hmm. good yeah. for her. She yes, absolutely. So. Um, I'm just going to kind of read from this article that I found online to give a little bit of background into who she is. So she was featured on a 1992 documentary called Child of Rage, uh, which featured shocking footage of her telling her psychiatrist, psychiatrist she wanted to kill her parents and brother in the dead of night. Um, she then, she was only six at the time and she wanted to lock and explained that parents Tim and Julie lock in her room at night to stop her from stabbing them to death. Yeah. Um, she admits to sexually abusing her younger brother, torturing the family dog, and killing a nest of baby birds. Jonathan also had to go, who is her brother, had to go to the hospital after Beth repeatedly um, had tried to smash his head into a concrete floor. So, she did some be- some some behaviors. Um... Both Beth and her brother John were severely neglected as children. Um, her mom died when she was, I think, one, and her brother uh, had like a um, something wrong with his head because he was constantly in the crib all day. So there was severe abuse and neglect. And she was diagnosed with reactive attachment disorder. So it's a condition, serious condition, where young children fail to make healthy attachments to parents and kill caregivers due to that extreme abuse. And attachment disorders, right? Uh, not well. Attachment disorders. So remember, borderline personality, abandonment issues. So mm-hmm. later, it turns into something bigger than that. Right. And when I mean bigger, not that reactive attachment disorders isn't big, but later on in life, our personality disorders are a product of our environment, right? And that's why I think we can't diagnose until they're eighteen. Okay. Because that is significantly later on in life in which that is a product of who we become. Right. I guess of, that would make sense. Yeah. yeah. So kind of full circle there. Because, um, yeah, you and me be treated the same, but I may turn out differently by the time I'm 25, and you may be... Completely you know, different. A mm-hmm. sociopath or a psychopath right. or whatever. No, that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so Beth had grown up neglected, like I said, significant history of trauma. She was sexually abused by her biological father when she was under two years old. Um, her mom died, like I said, when she was one. Uh, so she is a success story. She took her, um, her history, her life as the person that she was and and turned it around. Um, but this goes into some more stuff that I wasn't totally familiar with. She was jailed at some point, too, for doing some 
pretty irrational kind of therapy. So, but we'll save that for another day. <laughs> um, but nonetheless, she was successful at one point. I don't really know where she's at now. She might so, have went off the rocker, guys. Hey, yeah, something might have happened. Hey. Um, but, so, without going too much into that, you know, she was essentially a functioning, it sounds like, for a little bit. All right. But then she wasn't, sounds like. Based on what I just read, but that's okay. We'll save, like I said, we'll save that for another day. Yeah. But people can ultimately, you know, live with this. They can. So this stuff is on a spectrum. These mental illnesses are on a spectrum. I know people who are severely mentally ill who are functioning just fine with the help of psychotropic meds, with the help of therapy, uh, with you know, group support systems. You know, interesting stuff looking into all this, too. I am interested on your take of, uh, especially on serial killers, what do you think is the biggest drive component? Of somebody wanting to be a serial killer? Yeah, or serial killers in general. I don't think anybody ever wants to be one. It just kind of yeah. happens. Right, right. So what biggest drive? Because an interesting thing that uh, I, I read in several other articles is one, one of the biggest factors, it seems, with serial killers is wanting that sense of control. Yeah, mm -hmm. power. It's mm -hmm. like it all stems to control, whether it's a lack of, or it could be a person that already has a lot of control in their mm -hmm. life and they just seek more. Right. So it could go both ways, but it always seems to be the sense of control mm -hmm. is one of the biggest factors in serial killers. Mm -hmm. Well, I think we mentioned a little bit of something of that sorts when we talked about Jeffrey Dahmer yeah. back in the first podcast. His inability to control his life around him. He was so out of control. He couldn't keep a job. He was an alcoholic. Um, he His relationships, you know, his, his family abandoned him. He was left alone when he was a child. His dad was working all the time. And he, you know, the, the way he did get control is he ultimately got, you know, disorganized at that he went to these clubs saw out his victim brought his victim home mm. got away got what he wanted with his victim and then he killed them yeah like that's a lot of control over a situation yeah so yeah severe abandonment issues so right. you know i don't think they're you know to answer your question if i could put it in like a timeline it'd be like severe history of abuse and trauma um your perception of the world and cognitive distortions, your perception of the world is very skewed and unhealthy. And so that contributes to how you behave. Mm -hmm. If I can put it in like a A plus B equals C. And why does the ultimate act of you feeling like you do have control have to do with taking someone's life? Because you're controlling the life and what happens. Well, well I, I mean, I get that, mm -hmm. but I'm saying like, why does it have to be that? Taking of the life? Mm -hmm. Well, that goes that's, back to their diagnoses. Like that's like the ultimate control. Well, yeah, yeah, but, and, but see, you making that statement right there is what I'm talking about, right? Because I feel a lot of people would say that as well. So no judgment there whatsoever. But right. like, why is that the case? Well, they're delusional. Yeah, but even why would Ryan think that? Like taking a life is ultimate control. Well, why would you think taking a life is ultimate control? I wouldn't think that. That's what I want to know. Well, yeah. Yeah, why do you say that? Because if they're willing... Because if they have you, 
they have you in their we just say custody, their 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 control. You're in, you're under their control. Right. And they are in complete control of that person. And if they want to let you go, they will. If they don't, they won't. Mm. That's the way I see it. Yeah, that's always just struck me. Like, why does taking someone's life have to be that statement of ultimate control? Or, like, why does it result in that? Well, I, I, I think, like, if you, if you look at it, what else do you have in your life that you that you could have as much control as taking the life another life of another person. Right. Essentially that's the question I'm asking. Right. Yeah. Well that's I'm yeah. asking it right. back. Right. There is nothing else. No. And if you're just out there killing people and you know I mean, you can I control, can control what pop I drink, man. Right. Right. Yeah, but you ever get a really fucking flat pop and it pisses you right the fuck off? That doesn't make me want to kill people. Well, I, I know that, but I a know, sense I'm of lack of control, you <laughs> tool. Right, I know, I know. So I don't think anything in this world gives us the sense of control than taking the life of another human. And in conjunction with lack of remorse and empathy for how other people Right, because you feel. have no meaning for life at that yeah. point. So, so again, I don't think that stands alone. Right. Right? That idea of power and control does not stand alone. Right. Your perception of the world is fucked it's skewed, and, and you do this thing that feels good, you get immediate relief when it happens, then you might feel guilty, but not, or not really sure how to feel, and then it's like a cycle, right? It's a deviant mm-hmm. behavior cycle. Hmm. It's complicated stuff, dudes. I feel like I was just in a fucking class, I'm not going to lie. Yeah? <laughs> I felt like I was sitting in a class. Did you enjoy it, though? Yeah, it was, it was very interesting, okay, yeah. Cool. Because... Oh, yeah. Ultimately, and I want to know what the audience thinks, too. I want to know if what we're talking about resonates. Are you learning something? Is there stuff you already know? Am I leaving unanswered questions? If you have questions, ask. Maybe I can respond to it. Dude, I completely kind of understand the common mixed deceptions now when people use terms like psychopath and sociopath now. Like, Mm -hmm. you made that pretty damn clear. Cool. Yeah, I don't even see much gray in there. I see the couple areas that you were talking about, how they can overlap and be gray. But there is kind of a clear difference between sociopath and psychopath. Yeah, well, if you if you take the disorganized versus the organized part, um, for sure, uh, there's definitely a difference there. But I think people in society ultimately overlap the two or interchange the two when they're not. Well, also, like how you broke down the four different types of serial killers too. While I believe both of those can be intermingled in all four of those, mm-hmm. but like. Some of those almost kind of make sense with, like, psychopaths and missionary and, you know what I'm saying, like, they kind of, like, fit the profiles of one another, depending on the types of serial killers. Even though they can intermingle, yes, Mm -hmm. but I'm saying it just makes sense, Mm -hmm. like, the way it's been mapped. How they're defined. Yeah. Yeah. Wild. Wild. Yeah. Thanks, Chelsea. Yeah. Uh Appreciate if, it. For the feedback, you know, you can email us, pancakes on Sunday morning, gmail.com. Follow us on Instagram, pancakes on Sunday podcast. Stay up to date. We'll post when a new episode drops. Uh, you can DM us there as well if you have any questions. Um, and yeah, stay tuned for some. I mean, 
the some person more in. flavors of pancakes. Yes, yeah, some more flavors of pancakes. Yeah, dude. You never know what you're gonna get. Oh hell yeah! So oh, yeah, it's alright. There's a lid on it. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's it. That's all we got for you guys. Have a good evening. Bye. 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 Bye.